2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Welcome to The Exchange, everyone. I am John Fort, in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Stocks are starting this week the way they finished the last six weeks, Lower the SP 500 trying to hold on to that 4,000 level. We are looking at beaten down stocks and sectors and asking if this is the time to buy or to sell. And Bitcoin also falling today, back below 30,000 for now. What's happening in the crypto market? Why aren't the buyers jumping in more? Plus, a big week of retail earnings. We are breaking down Walmart and Home Depot ahead of results, but we begin with Dom Chu and today's numbers. More Dom. mixed,
4: but definitely to the downside right now, John, to your point. The overall mix is now decidedly to the red. More so in the NASDAQ composite, which has been, as many of you viewers and listeners know, the epicenter for a lot of the volatility over the last several weeks and maybe even months at this point. The NASDAQ composite's down 156 points right now. That's roughly one and a third percent. To give you some indication for the intraday levels, we were down 13 points at the highs of the session and down about 178 points at the lows. So tilting towards the lower end of that trading range so far today, the S&P 500, Right at the 4,000 level, 4,002, in fact, down 22 handles, half of 1%, and down one-tenth of a percent for the Dow Industrials, 32,159. What's curious right now is that we are on a multi-day losing streak when it comes to stock market volatility. This is the VIX index, which measures stock market volatility around the S&P 500. As you can see here, we're at about 2829. The reason why I want to hide it out is because we have been – On this kind of recent, very short-term downtrend, again, for about five or six days now in the VIX. But just to keep it in mind, over the last 200 trading days, we're talking close to around 22. That's the 200-day average of the VIX index. So still very, very relatively high but still coming off the highs we'll see if that kind of plays out in today's session even though stocks are lower by the way and then check out what's happening with meta platforms netflix comcast the parent company of this network cnbc ibm advanced micro devices these are some of the stocks that have been outperforming in today's trade in the communication services and technology sector, John. We have been seeing downtrends for many of these stocks. IBM, though, holding up relatively well compared to just about everybody on the screen. But meta platforms up one and three quarters percent right now. It's one to keep an eye on. We'll see if traders are a little bit more bullish about that stock after a beating it's been taking over the last year or so. And, of course, Netflix and positive analyst comments. I'll send things back over to you.
3: Dom, when you call and Advanced Micro Devices, it sounds like a kid who's in trouble getting called by its middle name. But that is indeed. <laughs> to the indeed, principal's office. Yes, the name of the stock. Don, thanks. Let's kick things off with one of the boldest calls on the street today. Fintech out of favor. Recently, public companies out of favor. Who cares? Shares of SoFi uh, jumping a bit on an upgrade to overweight at Piper Sandler, despite having been cut in half this year. Uh, Up today, but down more than 50 percent in 2022 as rising rates and the federal student loan moratorium take a toll, more than 70% off its highs. But Piper says the market is over-discounting shares and underestimating a potential revenue surge in 2023. Joining me now is the analyst behind the call. Let's welcome in Kevin Barker, equity analyst at Piper Sandler. Kevin, uh, again, welcome. But why? Why now? Because there's certainly a lot of negative sentiment that could drive SoFi lower.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's been under a lot of pressure. Uh, there's funding pressure across the vendors, There's a lot of headwinds, but, you know, earnings are set to inflect higher, which we haven't seen for the last several years for SoFi. And I think as earnings start to move higher and we start to see that in the back half of the year, the market's going to come back to SoFi. And with the stock trading where it is, I think there's, you know, you're going to see a lot of the, the market start to favor it once again.
3: Now, Kevin, I wonder, though, if there are a lot of investors in the market who are used to instant gratification. How much crow does an investor have to be prepared to eat before they feel like they're right on stuff that they buy right now?
5: Of course. I mean, it, we, we got a ton of pushback on, on the call, uh, especially around financials investors who uh, look at rising funding costs and a price-to-book value multiple that, that is fairly expensive relative to other banks. But at the same time, I mean, there's a reason why people were buying the stock a year ago and, why, and the growth that the company's been able to produce Combined with what I think has changed quite a bit is that there's a deposit base now, which pr- improves the funding base better than most other neo banks that we see out there today. The yeah, we just had uh, so far.
3: Speaking of that, we just had Anthony Noto on a few days ago, post earnings, talking about what he's going to do with that deposit base and perhaps with the interest that you know investors. Uh, savers can earn on accounts in a rising rate environment, especially given SoFi now is a bank. What does that do for them that gives them an advantage perhaps over competitors?
5: It gives them a, a, a sticky source of funding, um, a lower cost of funding relative to warehouse lines or selling whole loans in the mar- market. Um, that has been, you know, continuing to rise. The costs are continuing to rise for those types of uh, funding sources, especially in this rate environment. And so if they can, uh, you know, lean on a deposit base to be able to grow and to be able to hold loans for a longer period of time, their earnings should move higher.
3: So uh, market cap on SoFi right now is right around five and a half billion. What are the potential outcomes good for investors here? I mean, is this an area that's going to consolidate with neobanks where perhaps somebody tries to take them out for their uh, customer base and technology at some point? Or you expect them to grow organically?
5: I think they're going to grow organically. I think they have bigger things that they're looking at over the long term, and if they can establish a deposit base and a strong capital base, which they what appears like they have with it, with the capital that they've raised, um, they should be able to continue to grow at a fairly rapid clip. Um, if that were to continue, you know, you're going to see quite a bit of you know upside in the stock as long as the market starts to stabilize here.
3: So where's the asterisk in your call here? I mean, usually you know, you don't come out and say, well, there's no way I'm wrong about this. Is there something that you're going to be watching down the line? And if they trip over a particular hurdle, then your call could change.
5: Yeah. I mean, maybe the student loan refi that happens after the student loan moratorium ends. We don't know when that's going to end, but we we anticipate that's in 2023. So that could be a headwind that we're not anticipating. Um, Rising funding costs. Maybe there's not a refi potential there on the student loan side with rising rates. So, you know, there's definitely some headwinds there. Um, maybe the deposit costs are going to rise faster than we expect it. Certainly that could happen. And the financial services segment continues to lose money. So it, the SoFi needs to, you know, start to show half to close to profitability in the financial services segment um, in order for a lot of this to work. Um, if they do, though, then, you know, it, there is a lot of momentum and that will continue to move to the upside.
3: All right. it's cheap enough. You're willing to take that bet. Kevin Barker, thank you. Thank you, John. Meanwhile, there is a growing divide over whether the economy is heading toward a recession. Goldman Sachs chief U.S. equity strategist David Coston lowering his economic growth targets for 2022. He also cut his year end S&P target to 4,300 from 4,700 to reflect higher interest rates and slower economic growth. His new baseline forecast assumes no recession. But former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein has a different take, saying recessionary pressures are there.
4: Do you think we're headed towards recession?
0: Um, We're certainly heading. It's certainly a very, very high risk factor. And there's a but I, you know, there's a path. It's a narrow path. But um, I I think the Fed has very powerful tools. It's hard to finely tune them and it's hard to see the effects of them quickly enough uh, to alter it. But. Uh, I think they are um, I think they're responding well. I think it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely a risk. If I were running a big company, I would be very prepared for it. If I was a consumer, I'd be prepared for it. But it's not baked in the cake.
3: Mm, very prepared, but not baked. Let's welcome in Mark Tepper, founder and CEO of Strategic Wealth Partners. Mark, hey, you think we need to be prepared to eat that recession cake? Hey.
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're when you get stimmy check after stimmy check, unfortunately, you know, our economy is at a point where, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to take our medicine. Um, If you just listen to what Jay Powell has said over the course of the last few months, he was all about soft landing. Then soft landing became softish landing, whatever that means. And then that became things are going to be painful, which insinuates kind of a hard landing, right? Let's remember, you know, with the, with the economy slowing, the Fed has a dual mandate, price stability and full employment, not propping up the stock market and despite what a lot of people believe, not avoiding recessions either. I understand there's a high correlation between the unemployment rate and recessions, but that is not a direct mandate and look consensus seems to believe right now that there's less than a 50 percent chance of a recession that it would be next year that it would be short and shallow i disagree with all those things i think the recession is going to be longer and deeper than most people believe and i'm not a johnny come lately jumping on the recession bandwagon i've been saying this for months john
3: why do you think that is it because you think it's going to take sustained significant uh rate rises that are going to slow the economy down to the point of shrinking and that, you know, the Fed has enough room for unemployment uh, to to rise a bit and still be within the mandate?
6: Yeah, well, if you think about it, so I, I think there's like 11 and a half million job openings. So as a as a business owner myself. When things get tight, the very first thing I'm gonna do is take down the job posting. So that 11.5 number will start to come down, but the unemployment rate won't go up yet. Eventually, the unemployment rate will go up because the Fed has to combat inflation. They're going to have to deal with it incredibly harshly. And and John, if you think about it, I mean, over 50% of the U.S. population has less than $50,000 in retirement savings. Do you think they care if their 401k drops another 10%? They don't. What they care about is they want to make sure that their their paycheck lasts all the way through the month, that they have enough money in their paycheck to put gas in their car, put food on the table. So inflation needs to be dealt with harshly. And I think that means
3: we got to take our medicine. And so therefore, what should investors be prepared for to happen to stocks in the near term, particularly growth stocks and maybe even, um, you know, these broader market indices like uh, those who are looking at just the S&P?
6: So, I think in the short term, you could see kind of an oversold bounce. I'm not as concerned about the short term. I do think longer term, I think there is more pain ahead. John, despite how bearish I sound, um, we actually did buy some stocks last week. We've been sitting like 17 to 18% in cash, went down to 15% now. But we've been focusing all along the way on high-grading that portfolio, moving up the quality ladder, but our positioning is very defensive. I mean, you take, um, you know, consumer discretionary, that sector as an example, which, you know, it's been a complete bloodbath in that sector. We're buying companies that are more staples-like. So we added to Target, we added to McDonald's, we added to Planet Fitness. Those are companies that, in my my mind, are going to be less impacted by a recession.
3: All right, buy the strip mall, sounds like you're saying, you know, back to basics. All right, Mark Tepper, thank you. Thanks, John. Coming up, Bitcoin falling again today. It is down more than 22% so far in May. The CEO of Custodia Bank, a digital asset bank, joins me to discuss why she thinks price is the least interesting point uh, of Bitcoin. Hey, I've been watching it. Plus, take two set to report after the bell today while Walmart and Home Depot are out tomorrow morning. The action, the story, the trade coming up in earnings exchange. We're back in two.
7: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
8: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at
9: 3 a.m.
8: The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva Presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. Former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke issuing a warning about crypto assets In an exclusive interview with CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning, Bernanke said Bitcoin is a speculative asset that could face more scrutiny in the near
7: future. One of the other risks that Bitcoin has is that it could, at some point, be subject to a lot more regulation. And the anonymity is also at risk, I think, at some point. So, you know, investors in Bitcoin should be be aware of that. Well, at some point the former
3: Fed chair, making these comments as crypto prices continue to decline and the investors in them continue to assess what the fallout will be from last week's issues with Tether stablecoins. Joining me now is Caitlin Long, chairman and CEO of Custodia Bank, which provides banking services to those involved in digital assets. Caitlin, welcome. So um, I know that you've got a, a different and more cautious approach to these markets. You know, I'm looking, you've got your own what seems to be a stablecoin sort of issuance of it. Um, Tell me, why shouldn't investors, though, be concerned that these issues with stablecoins, algorithmic stablecoins, might upset the entire apple cart, even for more responsible crypto assets? Well, they should
2: be concerned about the stability of algorithmic stablecoins or crypto-backed stablecoins as, as uh, last week's incident with Terra confirms, for sure. Uh, that said, there's real technology in, in those of us who, who didn't play the fast money game, who are building for the long term and recognize that we can deliver better, faster, cheaper, and more transparent payments using these technologies. And w- when I say these technologies, I'm mostly limiting it to Bitcoin. I'm not limiting, I'm not expanding it to the broader crypto universe. These are powerful technologies that will bring us better, faster, cheaper payments. And and, uh, most recently, I I came across some data that Wells Fargo and JP Morgan, between the two of them, have almost a 50% market share in ACH payments and could go up to a, a markup of 100 times their cost. Is what they turn around and charge to their customers. This was uh, got to give a ha- hat tip to Wise, mm. formerly TransferWise, in a uh, in a letter to the Fed revealed
3: all those statistics. Okay, and that just shows it's ripe for the ripe for the disruption. But I mean, there are a lot of growth stocks that a lot of people consider promising. Shopify, for example, that are trading at early 2020 levels or even a bit lower than that. And if you had told some people in early 2020 that Bitcoin you know, w- would go up to 15,000, they'd have been pretty happy. So do you have a point of view on whether Bitcoin belongs at 30,000 right now or 15? Well, to the intro to this segment, I think price
2: is the least interesting aspect. What I care about is. But it's the interesting network to people data. who bought it.
3: It's interesting to people <laughs> who bought it at 30. Okay. So. Uh, th- yep. Sure. So, so That's, tell fair. Me, That's fair. That's fair. Do you, do you have a dog in that fight? Do you have a point of view on whether it belongs at 30 versus 15?
2: Well, we may very well see another leg down. I am worried about that. I don't make price predictions, but there's still so much leverage and so much just, um, just bubble dynamic. Uh, that we're, we're starting to see that correction come from the periphery of the periphery into crypto uh, uh, into the periphery and then not yet to the core. Uh, but uh, I think it could still go there because there's still a lot of deleveraging to do, just
3: as there is in the broader economy as well. So let's talk more about what you say is more interesting than about Bitcoin. What is the sort of positive use case and, and the businesses that we're going to see built on the back of it that are gonna lead to a resurgence in confidence, not just in the price of it, but in the usefulness of it down the line. Is it NFTs type stuff? Is it something else? No,
2: NFTs can't be issued on Bitcoin. Bitcoin does one thing extraordinarily well. It's a very simple system relative to most of crypto. Bitcoin transfers value. And in particular, Bitcoin transfers high value at a very, very, very low cost. You could transfer billions of dollars for a dollar or two in cost, and and that's what it does well. And and the scaling technologies like the Lightning Network in Bitcoin will allow us to move money instead of paying Visa and Mastercard three percent. You you can move money through maybe only one intermediary instead of five or six, which is what happens now when you when you use a credit card, uh, and and the cost and the and the speed and the and the efficiency are going to go way up. We are at the early stages of that.
3: I get that, but to me, it almost sounds like arguing for the overall benefit of cloud technology and therefore what the price of an individual semiconductor might have to be. Why does Bitcoin, the value of a Bitcoin, have to go up, right? Just because the value the technology is delivering is so high.
2: Yes, Bitcoin is the only truly decentralized digital asset. And it is money that has no issuer. And because it is decentralized, no one at this point is ever going to be able to change the number of Bitcoins outstanding. There will never be more than 21 million. And they can be divided into 100 million each one of those, but no one's making more of them. And so just from a scarcity standpoint, the inflation rate of Bitcoin is approximately the inflation rate of gold right now. And that's gonna be cut in half. It gets cut in half every four years. And so from a scarcity standpoint, it becomes harder and harder to find real on-chain Bitcoin. But what does it do? What does it, from a utility perspective, it allows you to transfer value. And, and those, the payment piece is what I'm really
3: working on and what, right. what everyone should be watching in the next few years, for sure. Well, uh, it is certainly an important space that we continue to watch, and it's volatile, too. Caitlin, thank you. Caitlin Long with Custodia Bank. Coming up, oil climbing nearly 50% this year, and that sort of price surge used to mean producers would turn on the taps. But this time around, execs are focused elsewhere. We will look at what some are calling the new age for oil companies. Plus, cloud stocks were powering higher on Friday, but today, a different story. Cloud ETF WCLD falling about 4%. The ETF has had a rough year, but... By more than 40%, it's down, and uh, one analyst says there's more pain ahead, at least in the short term.
8: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write, it works fast.
3: Welcome back to the exchange. Let's take a look at the markets right now. The Dow and S&P are just about at session highs. The Dow up about a half a percent. The S&P about flat. NASDAQ not at session highs. That is down about three quarters of a percent. Meanwhile, Netflix moving higher after Wedbush upgraded the stock to outperform from neutral. The firm saying that investor confidence is going to be restored as the company churns out new content. Carvana also higher after the company released a new operating plan, which aims to grow sales and rapidly reduce expenses. The stock, though, still down 80% year to date. And Eli Lilly leading the S&P following FDA approval of its type 2 diabetes treatment. The stock outperforming the bottom markets this year, up 12%. Uh, let's now get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Ty?
7: John, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The suspect in this weekend's California church shooting has been charged with one count of murder and five counts of attempted murder. 68-year-old David Chow of Las Vegas is being held on $1 million bail. Officials say they don't yet know of any motive for the shooting, which occurred during a lunch reception at a church in Laguna Woods, California. Police have now released the identities of the 10 people who died in a mass shooting in a Buffalo, New York supermarket on Saturday. Three others were injured. The majority of the victims were black, and officials are investigating it as a possible hate crime. Police say the suspect in the case, who has pleaded not guilty... To continue his rampage nearby if he had not been apprehended. We'll have more on this outbreak of violence on the news with Shepard Smith, which will be live from Buffalo at 7 p.m. Eastern Time tonight. And McDonald's will exit the Russian market after 30 years. The fast food giant says it has begun the process of selling all of its 850 restaurant uh, locations in that country. The move comes in direct response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with McDonald's saying a continued presence is no longer. Consistent with company values. John, back to you.
3: Tyler, thank you. And coming up, strong comps expected for Walmart's Sam's Club this quarter. Home Depot has missed earnings estimates only once in the past five years. And the options market in Take Two Interactive is implying a nearly 10% move after today's results. That could be up or down. What to watch and how to trade those names up next in Earnings Exchange. And during May, we are celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors.
10: Here is FunStrat's Tom Lee. I grew up in Michigan. My parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 60s. My father was a doctor, my mother was a business owner. And one of the things I'm so proud of them is is how hard they worked really to not only Uh, overcome the language barriers and learn English, but also just a work ethic. And that's stuck with me my whole life, that you need to work hard, contribute to the community, and really emphasize family. I think that's what I have the most pride about.
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. Time now for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three key reports. Let's start with Walmart. Shares have climbed 10% since its last report. It's one of only a handful of public companies that report more than $100 billion in revenue per quarter. Courtney Reagan has the story on Walmart, and Matt Maley has the trade. He's chief market strategist at Miller Tabak. Courtney, um, what's the story on Walmart? I mean, it's, uh, it's about flat in two years, but that's actually good news in this market. It's doubled in five.
9: Yeah, absolutely, John, and obviously Walmart sells a wide variety of things, but it really is considered a consumer staple. More than two-thirds of what it sells, or I should say actually probably more than half more appropriately, is grocery, and so that is a repeat trip driver, and it is a good business for Walmart. It's been growing, particularly with the integrations and innovations that they've made with the online offerings for grocery, and so it is expected to be a relative outperformer when it comes to the results here that we're going to be seeing from the first quarter. U.S. comparable sales, that's really that key metric we hone in on, expected to grow about 2.5% ex-fuel. Sam's Club, though, those comps are expected to be much higher, up nearly 6%. Sam's Club has had a strong run, but of course, if you're a member of Sam's, you can also get discounts on gasoline, which in a very inflationary environment for energy prices is very attractive to many consumers. So I think we're going to want to watch for patterns. Are consumers that are filling up their tanks also going inside, taking advantage of bulk pricing? on food and filling up their trunks too in that one trip. I think general merchandise could definitely see a hit this quarter. Those are typically higher margin prices, but if discretionary spending is reined in, that may be where you see it. So we should watch for margins there, particularly online with Walmart because they've been trying to grow those high margin products online with apparel and home to help bring that up the margin, lower the cost of operating online. And big, big questions, of course, did Walmart pick up any of the online sales share? that might have been left on the table from Amazon, from eBay, from Mm. Etsy this past quarter when those results were fairly disappointing. So we'll have to see. And of course, if anybody can offer a nice pricing power in an inflationary environment, it's Walmart, even though we are seeing some data from similar web that tracks prices and conversion, and they are seeing conversion down and pricing higher. Interesting,
3: Court. Uh, Matt, especially given the indigestion that Amazon's been having in its staffing up labor-wise and its logistics network. Um, Does Walmart look good here into earnings because presumably, because it already had uh, a network in physical locations, it doesn't have those same problems?
0: Well, it, it looks good to a certain degree. And, and you know, as Courtney said, they've they made such great, done a great job uh, developing their, their online uh, business over the last several years uh, that, that it really has to be a core holding, I think, in, in anybody's portfolio. <clears throat> and the other thing, of course, on the positive side of things is that, you know, they, uh, simply that, you know, inflation should be something that actually helps them, at least helps if, if it hurts their margins. It should help their market share. You know, they're still a low-priced retailer and it's certain, you know, People or a certain level of of income starts to you know look to save some money, uh, going to Walmart to may pick up that'll help them uh, uh, you know uh, increase their market share. I mean this is going to be a very important week for the retailers uh, because everybody's you know the, especially the bulls are really holding on saying hey listen the consumer see- remains really really strong. If we start to see from Walmart and others uh, that they're starting to pull in their horns and then maybe the second half won't be as strong as some people are saying, uh, it's going to be uh, really important to the, to the entire stock market. So uh, not just from Walmart the entire group
3: yeah I mean speaking of others court back to you on this let's talk about Home Depot shares are down 30 percent this year right now the 50 right now near the 52 week low analysts are going to be looking for strength in the DIY consumer segment as well as any insight into the home improvement spending trends as mortgage rates soar so Courtney what can we expect for guidance from Home Depot and where are the points of, of um, I guess sensitivity for them, whether it's inflation, whether it's uh, mortgage rates and people not being as willing to borrow against their homes to do improvements.
9: So there's a lot going on with Home Depot's numbers. I think we need to remember that we might see a bit of a miss here when it comes to sales for the spring quarter, which is very important to the home improvement retailers. But we had really bad seasonal weather, so most people are expecting a bit of a disappointment based on where things could have been otherwise. Plus, we have higher inventory levels now, but potentially lower demand. When it comes to the forecast looking forward, Home Depot is always talking about home affordability, what that means when they look at all of those factors. And I think the big concern, of course, is the rising interest rates. And Piper Sandler did some interesting work and looked over the last 30 years when they saw interest rates rise in a short period of time, more than 100 basis points, they did see that retail sales slowed by about 4 to 5% on average. And I think that could be a potential problem for home improvement retailers. But remember, they do have an outsized business to the pro customers. Barclays is saying that they're not seeing any of those survey results tick down and that things look just as strong in the first quarter as in the fourth. But Maybe it'll be a wait and see for the company when it comes to guidance, because we believe the spring quarter was not nearly as strong as it could have been.
3: All right, Court, thanks. Uh, Matt, given the pipeline that's existed over time for these home improvement projects, what Court was just saying about professionals being part of Home Depot's base, how do you feel about that even compared to Walmart?
0: Well, it's kind of funny. I mean, I am nervous about this. I mean, the stock is already down 30%, uh, and, and and it's becoming a lot more, i say, more reasonable at 18 times earnings, uh, but it's still not really, really cheap. But one thing I will say, and we've got lumber down pretty big today, and there's a high correlation between uh, lumber and, and, and so a lot of these home builders, including Home Depot. But you know one of the things I think people are making a bit of a mistake here is they're worried about with these high mortgage rates which I am worried about. But you know they're they're worried about oh geez we're gonna have a, a repeat of what we saw 15 years ago when the housing market completely imploded. I think it's more important to look at what happened in the 1970s uh, because people aren't, you know, unlike 15 years ago, people aren't putting 5% down to buy a second home to flip it in six months. They're buying it to live in the home. In the 1970s, hard assets like ho- homes, housing, uh, was did very, very well, even though in, uh, mortgage rates were in the double digits, well into the double digits. Uh, so I think this is going to be I, I guess I'm not as concerned about this group as, as some people are. I think there's more downside because I'm concerned about the market overall. Uh, but I do think that uh, this is going to be a surprise to people that it's going to bottom a lot earlier than a lot of other uh, names, a lot of other groups. And, and when it when it bounces back, it, it's going to surprise people as well. So uh, a little cautious, but at the same time, I think I'm a lot more uh, upbeat than, than than most of the Wall Street on this, on this on this particular stock and on the group overall.
3: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder how affordability plays into that as well now finally from home improvement to home entertainment take two interactive the video game maker down 40 percent this year as it prepares to complete its zynga acquisition zynga not zynga zynga acquisition stay competitive in the crowded video game space steve kovac has the story on take two steve uh stable base of big games even as they attempt to buy zynga making the mobile games what's going to matter in this quarter
10: yeah, it's really going to be the outlook, John. So what we saw last week with some of the gaming earnings, especially Roblox and EA, was even though they missed expectations, both of those companies on the top and bottom lines, the stocks will soared the next day. Roblox is up 20% intraday on comments that, hey, the pandemic boom may be over, but our comps are going to start looking better. We're growing very healthily, and we want to see if Take-Two is going to have similar commentary about that growth, whether they've kind of lapped themselves with – these crazy pandemic comps and whether growth is going to be a little bit more stable throughout the, next, the rest of the year. And then, of course, like you said, Zynga, that, that is expected to close uh, later this summer. And that mobile is such a huge part of Take-Two's strategy going forward. They think that in this coming fiscal year, which just started this quarter, they're going to be able to have 50 percent of their bookings uh, come from mobile. And Zynga is going to be a big part of that, John. So any comments on Zynga is going to be really something to pay attention to.
3: Yes, Steve. Um, Thanks. So, Matt, Take-Two is trading just about where it was at the beginning of 2018, four and a half years ago, even while Microsoft is looking to take out a big video game maker. I mean, is that a sign of value here or should we pay more attention to what's happening with these particular earnings numbers?
0: Well, you know, on the value side of things, I mean, the stock's trading at at, at uh, 22 times earnings and 3.7 uh, times sales, and you think, geez, those sound like pretty high numbers, pretty high numbers. Uh, but you know, for this stock in particular, uh, they're actually pretty reasonable if you look at, it, at excuse me at its history, and so uh, that's a good thing. And as Steve talked talked about this move into mobile. I mean, again, talk to my kids about it. That, that they said this is a great move. I mean, uh, f- for the company, and uh, they're they're big users there, and so that's very positive. The other thing. I just note though the stock, as you mentioned, is down 50%. It is down a lot. And you look on a, on a on a technical basis, it's incredibly oversold, at least at the lows of last week. A little less so over the last couple of days, but still very oversold. So the, they only just have to report anything in line, and of course, not just their earnings, but their guidance. As Steve mentioned, the guidance is going to be the key. But if, as long as they don't disappoint, this stock, I can really see some have some uh, tremendous upside uh, possibilities there, especially for short-term traders. Now, the one thing that we have to worry about is just because the stock stocks oversold doesn't mean it's going to bounce uh, because, you know, if they do report negative ones, we saw what happened with Netflix. It was oversold. They reported poor earnings and the stock got clobbered. So we need to be careful. But I think there's some upside potential here, especially on a short term basis. Tremendous even. That's a word we're not hearing too
3: much uh, in a positive context in this market. So we look forward to see how that does. Matt, thank you. Steve Kovac, thank you as well. Now coming up on the exchange, JetBlue making a hostile bid now for Spirit Airlines, but Spirit wants to stick to its deal with Frontier. We're going to have the leanest on this battle in the skies. Welcome back. The battle for Spirit Airlines heating up as JetBlue launched a hostile takeover, trying to beat out other low-cost carrier Frontier Airlines. Phil LeBeau joins me now with the latest and whether JetBlue will emerge victorious. Phil, why does JetBlue want Spirit so bad?
11: Well, it's the key to its growth in the future, John. And they believe that their offers, and we say offers because they twice have gone to the Spirit Board, they don't believe that they've been fully heard. So they are coming back this time, and they're saying, you know what? We're going to go straight to the shareholders. We're going to make this a hostile bid, a tender offer of $30 a share. And as you take a look at shares of JetBlue and of Spirit, you'll see that, well, the reaction has been positive for Spirit this morning, not as much so for JetBlue. They are also encouraging Spirit investors to reject or vote no on the combination between Spirit and Frontier when that comes up on June 10th. I talked with Robin Hayes, CEO of JetBlue earlier today and and he's basically said look we believe that we have a superior bid and they also uh, he says that that $30 a share he said look at that it is a premium a substantial premium it actually turns out to be 60% to where Spirit shares are trading right now the deal is fully financed also he says we see a path to $33 a share contingent upon Spirit's board coming back and actually negotiating with them Spirit has twice rejected JetBlue merger offers the biggest complaint, if there is a complaint about why they don't think the deal would work, they don't think the DOJ would approve it. They think that a, high uh, a higher-cost airline buying a lower-cost airline would not get approval in Washington, D.C. Robin Hay says that's hogwash. In fact, he says they have hidden, meaning the Spirit Board, has hidden behind the regulatory approval argument as a smokescreen. So what happens next? Spirit's bid has got a couple of things happening here. First of all, JetBlue's meeting— with Spirit shareholders voting on the Frontier deal, that is going to be uh, coming up on the 10th. That's the merger there. Meanwhile, JetBlue is going to be meeting with Spirit investors. They already are. And I'm sure Spirit's board is going back to their largest investors and saying, here's why we do not think that you should go forward uh, and, and say, yeah, we're going to do this nope. tender offer. And then 30th, John, is JetBlue tender offer expires though it could be extended one other thing john okay we're going to hear from ted christie ceo of spirit coming up next hour on power lunch can't wait to hear what he has to say because during the earnings call last week john he made it clear he believes that this may not be about JetBlue actually combining with spirit he believes this may just be about preventing spirit and frontier getting
3: together well, but here's what I don't get, Phil. I mean, Spirit, uh, for, forgive me if I'm wrong here, doesn't have the absolute best reputation in customer service overall. So somebody fighting They've over Spirit. They've struggled at times. Yeah, they have struggled <laughs> at times, fair to say. And normally, if a company's got M&A going on, somebody wants to buy them a, a higher bid seen as a good thing. It's not as if JetBlue is United or Delta or one like a huge airline. Uh, right. out there. Well, why not negotiate something with a huge big breakup fee and, uh, and see what the best price is? What, what's really behind that?
11: Well, there, there is a reverse breakup fee of $200 million that JetBlue has put into its latest offer. The feeling from Spirit, and when I've talked with Ted Christie, when I've talked with others in the company, the feeling there is it doesn't matter how much you might modify the deal with, uh, between Spirit and JetBlue. They honestly believe that the DOJ is not going to approve it. So why go down that path? In their opinion, the only deal that will get approval in Washington is between Spirit and Frontier, two low-cost carriers coming together.
3: Huh. All right. Well, uh, maybe they have more faith in the the strength of the DOJ uh, than Microsoft does because it certainly is trying to take out uh, some things as well. Um, Phil LeBeau, thanks for those insights. Can't wait for that interview Uh, with Spirit coming up. And another rough day for the cloud stocks. CrowdStrike, Twilio, Datadog, all lower. But you can see, they've also bounced off their lows. So, dare I ask, is the bottom in? Is it time to buy the cloud? We will ask a top analyst next. rough day for the cloud stocks. Data dog, ticker double DOG, falling 10.5% today. And the pain is being felt across the entire sector as of late as tech takes a beating. Frank Holland joins me now with a look at where they could be headed next. Frank.
1: Hey there, John. You know, very tough day for cloud stocks. The WCLD falling along with the NASDAQ after its best day ever on Friday. Literally its best day ever. It was up 9% on Friday following what appears uh, following the 10-year yield hitting what appears to be a resistance level of 3.2% on Monday and then settling below 3%, the result a rally of almost all cloud names on Friday that's extended today to some of the hardest hit names. We're looking at stocks like Agora up more than a percent, but it's 80% off its 52-week high, also Riskified, also 80% off its 52-week high. Kind of flirting with positive negative territory today now in the negative. The big winner today is Infusion. Uh, 60% off its 52-week high. I've been talking to analysts. not really clear why it's rallying today, but certainly something to look at. But, Alan, analysts say if we did in fact see a resistance level in the 10-year yield and a plateau, at least for now, cloud and enterprise stocks, they could rally. Hard to tell today, but they could rally. Take a look at the relationship between the 10-year and the WCLD ETF right here. Pretty clear the inverse relationship right here. When the yield is lower, you see it's right over here. The yield goes up. You see right here the WCLD continues to fall. Relationship uh, between the yield and the high ingro- impact, uh, I mean, high-growth stocks, you can see, continues to be inverse. Valuation has been a really big story for these stocks, some of them with very elevated valuations if you look at Price to earnings ratio, but Bessemer Venture Partners, leading PE firm for cloud stocks, uses a slightly different metric. They use forward revenue multiple. When you look at this multiple, it's a, six and a, 16 and a half times as the median for cloud stocks. Over the last week, the stocks that fall under that metric far outperforming the market and the cloud ETF. We're seeing a lot of different stocks here uh, up double digits, including Amplitude, DocuSign, and DigitalOcean, all of them double up double
3: digits for the past week. John? All right. Frank, thank you. And now with uh, cloud stocks taking a leg lower today, my next guest says there's still short-term pain ahead, but the long-term aspects looking good. Let's bring in Brent Thill, Jeffrey's senior technology analyst. Brent, um, I'm not so sure about just the whole term cloud anymore because, I mean, uh, these are enterprise software companies, most of them, but into its base isn't even in the enterprise. Some of them are, you know, uh, infrastructure leaning, some of them are applications leaning. What's really happening in this group and where do you see the most potential?
12: Yeah, I mean, I think we're still transitioning to the public cloud, John. I mean, 20% of workloads are 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 in the public cloud and we still have a long way to go. I think many of these companies have described themselves as cloud stocks when when they're really disguised as, as true enterprise names, to your point. So, I think overall, look, the software industry is under a massive duress. We've seen multiples contract from a, a high of high, high teens to now mid single digit multiples on forward revenue. In past recessions, we've seen uh, multiples go as low as three times. So we still have a long way to go. And if you look at companies like Snowflake, Cloudflare, Datadog, you know they still have huge multiples that still can compress further. So we're tactically cautious. Because we think ultimately is if we go into a recession, all these companies have to lower numbers inevitably. And that could happen in the back half of the year. Most of our large investors are waiting to buy these stocks until the fall or early next year to really understand the shape of the curve of what happens with the the global macro picture. So right now, you know, Friday's action was just really hedge fund covering of shorts. There's not a lot of long only demand. Mm -hmm. We got to see the long only's come back. Uh, but we're positive over over time. Well, just short term, it's it's hard to be super bullish.
3: Let Let me ask you about a couple of names I know you're watching, Procore and SmartSheet. I've spoken with both CEOs in some depth over the last couple of weeks. Both have market caps around five, six billion. They're the type of stock that's going to get overlooked in this market. I think Procore is down like five percent uh, today. One focused in construction and the cloud. There, another focused in productivity software, which is an area a lot of people would think Microsoft has solved, but they've carved out a niche. How do you evaluate the potential of those types of companies in this type of market?
12: Procore uh, is a phenomenally run story for the construction industry, uh, really like the management team and the, their fundamental position. I think the short-term concern is the interest rate hangover on construction. So our building's gonna get built, our, our things are gonna get stalled because rates went higher. So they're living with that head. When we think construction starts, and what's happening in the industry will far exceed the weight of the interest rate issues. So fundamentally, they're in a great shape. Um, SmartSheet, you know, has has been uh, a real disappointing uh, story. They've been, uh, you know, good house in a bad neighborhood with Asana, SmartSheet, Monday.com, all bringing bringing their their valuation down. They're executing very well. Valuations very reasonable. And they help uh, companies collaborate on uh, everything that they do from concerts uh, all the way through, you know, just basic business processes. Uh, we really like the team. And, and, and think, again, that's a, a great long term story uh, that's mm. that's positioned well where the valuations come off.
3: We got like 20 seconds left. But Brent, Elon Musk just tweeted a poop emoji at Twitter's CEO. You think that deal is going to happen?
12: I think he wants it. There's no way he puts all those bullish uh, arguments on and does what he does Hmm. to not want it. He just wants a lower price. That's all it is.
3: Well, we'll see if Tesla investors want it because more and more uh, that's an issue as that stock is trading in the 700s. Brent Thill, thank you. And that's going to do it for The Exchange. Power lunch starts right now.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.